podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Welcome to the Wagon Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Kimber, and this show is part of the 99.94 Network. On this show, we record weekly with questions from the audience. This podcast is funded by Patreon, which you can join by clicking a link in the show notes. And there are many other benefits, but one of which is to ask questions first on this show. Let's start with uh, question number one. Varun says, is there really such a thing as a set batter? At any point in the game, it only takes one ball to get the batter out. Are there any metrics to back the concept of a set batter? So I can't remember who did the numbers. Might have been someone like Joe Harris, uh, who was the RCB analyst. If it wasn't him, I, I, I can't remember um, who it was, but someone looked into this and essentially, and I think this was in test cricket as well. I don't think this was just D20 cricket, but whoever it was looked into it and essentially batters are set once they've scored five runs. So it's, you, you know, it's that really, really early time when you're, um, you're going to be, be dismissed far more often, uh, which is, I think. Anyone who's watched cricket, it, it makes a lot of sense. But over the course of 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 um, of your career, you're going to get a lot of those, and then you got to go on. I would say that this is going to sound weird, but based on catch uh, or uh, uh, drop data, and I looked at this quite a few years ago, and I haven't looked at it since, so it may not hold up. But I reckon I looked at this in around 2018 that the amount of runs that each batter would at, would add after being dropped was around the average of 32, which is around the global average of what uh, batters av- you know, make. Meaning that you make, after the moment you're dropped, you make about the same amount of runs again as you would if you started from zero. And so for that, there's, there's a, I suppose there's almost two ways of looking at it from that perspective of once you have faced more than whatever it would take you to get to five runs, which is probably what in test cricket I would say the average player is probably between, what, 10 and 20 balls? It's just off the top of my head. I don't have those numbers. I would say that there is a level of comfortable um, nature that you feel. And I think most players who play who batted would would understand what I mean by that, even, even if it's just the amateur level. If you know how to bat, and I don't even mean be a star, but you know how to bat and, you know, you, 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 you've made a few 50s and you're handy for a couple of 30s. You do feel the difference between those first couple of balls where it feels like at any stage you could miss something. Not, not always. Um, you know, uh, sometimes I watch the ball a lot better at the start of my innings just because I am worried about going out. But, but I think as a normal batter would say, you know, those first couple of balls, then you get one away. Maybe you get a couple of singles. Maybe there's a loose one and you hit it for four. Suddenly there is a different level of batting that I think happens there. And statistically that does uh, track from what I've seen. Um, but I, what I don't think is there's no position where you've been batting for a long time and we would expect you to be so set that you cannot be dismissed. And, and that sounds silly, of course, because of course you can always be dismissed. But what I mean is, I don't think there's really that many times when you would expect the the expected runs of the player would be over like sixty more runs than what they get. And if I, I think I'm remembering this right, when you do it with the um, averages and you have a look at players' averages, and then you have a look at the way that bookmakers do over or unders, I think they not quite do this but they kind of just put the players average on top of what their score is at any one time so you know it's not there's no mad i don't think you suddenly get to 150 and they're like well this 
this person will make over 250. They're still thinking they could, they're about even money to get make over 200 or less than 200. So I don't think the concept of a set batter maybe doesn't quite work as well as the way that we talk about it. Um, but there certainly is levels of comfortability that you can see once a player has faced that 10 to 20 balls. Um, and, you know, uh, there are going to be times when you face 100 balls and you don't feel comfortable. And there are going to be times when you go out first ball and, uh, you know, cover drive it and, you know, everything's feeling good. Bloody Blogger says, we often consider spin bowling more of a tactical cerebral chess game uh, compared to pace bowling. Which spinners were um, purely uh, were the best purely in terms of winning the mind game? Yeah, I think that is, you know, I don't think you can be a great spin bowler without a deal of, uh, you know, being a, great, a very good chess um, player. I think you, you know, currently Ambrose averaged 20 or 21 or whatever it was. He was obviously a very smart bowler as well. If he wasn't as, as smart a bowler, but was still as accurate and still at his pace and the ability to hit the seam and his height, probably still averages 27 or 28. So I think we probably underestimate a little bit how much seamers have the ability to outthink bat, uh, players as well. Um, so from that perspective, um, it's easier to see with a spin bowler, I think. I think, I mean, you know, Bish and Beatty is probably one uh, that is sort of a lot. Sid Barnes, there's, I mean, Sid Barnes is not really thought of as a spinner as much these days, but he considered himself a spinner. And there's an incredible story, and I'm pretty sure it's Aubrey Faulkner because I think I've written about this one before, where he bowls to Aubrey Faulkner for an hour, um, uh, and then Aubrey Faulkner finally sees a short ball, goes back to pull it, and it slides through and bowls him. And Aubrey Faulkner realised that he's basically been setting him up for that ball for an hour. Um, the stories about Abdul Qadir are incredible. Um, there's a great piece by Christian Ryan that explains that even in club cricket, Abdul Qadir would spend an hour, two hours, three hours setting someone up, um, uh, you know, to, to dismiss them. Uh, so he was certainly on another level. I think you'd have to say that Shane Warne was there. I think Murali was certainly there. Whether he was quite on the level of Qadir and Warne, I don't know. I almost feel that his stock ball was so deadly, maybe... <laughs> This is one thing, if you have such a deadly stock ball, you maybe don't need to be as um, smart. And if you look at early career Warren, he's nowhere near as smart as late career Warren. Some of that is, is maturing, of course, and learning more about the game. But the other thing was he didn't have the shoulder or the finger strength anymore. So he couldn't just come in and rip every ball. He had to do other things. So you do develop a little bit. And there's no doubt that Murley was still a very clever bowler. Again, we talk about the, the Kirtley thing. You know, <laughs> if you just had Murley's spinning ability you're probably not going to end up with um you know a bowling average of 25 or whatever it was that he did um and the ash is uh, uh, our ashwin is incredible at setting up players i thought harath there's a spell that harath bowled in melbourne where i'm not even sure he got a wicket um it was i think it was like a eight nine ten over spell um at the mcg and i remember just being absolutely like he did everything he could to you know, get the player out of their position. I think Graham Swan's probably, especially because, again, Graham Swan, when he was young, probably someone who relied on the fact that he could spin the ball quite a lot and, you know, he got that natural curve and that natural dip because of the amount of spin that he put on the ball. Um, and I think if you look uh, later on in his career, you know, his elbow, was it, that w with Swan? I think it was his elbow. Once his elbow starts to go, he doesn't really tail off that much until right at the end where, um, he does get some tap, but um, 
it, yeah. it was quite clear for a long time that his elbow wasn't allowing him to spin the ball as much, and yet he was still a, a really, really, um, uh, you know, important bowler. And if you go to someone like Nathan Lyon, it's not that Nathan Lyon is unclever or, you know, unchess-like. What did you say? Un, uh, non-cerebral. Um, uh, but I think that Nathan Lyon's biggest skill is his stock delivery. And, and at a certain level, you need that, of course. Um, but if, you know, there have been times where he's been called, you know, an automaton because he has the ability to come in, land it. It's way more accurate than a lot of spinners. He has the ability to get side spin and bounce, which most most finger spinners don't get as much of both as he does, um, which keeps him, you know, which, which keeps batters honest um, on lots of different surfaces, which means that Nathan Lyon's always in the game. What Nathan Lyon doesn't have the ability to do is have a look at it. If you have a look at it, an Ashwin spell when things aren't quite going his way, his ability to go closer, wider, um, you know, change angles, change grips, change deliveries on a ball-by-ball um, basis where he might still be setting, a little bit like Abdul Qadir, he might still be setting you up for one particular delivery, but he's completely playing with your mind. That's probably much more like if you watch Shane Warne. So, you know, Shane Warne would bowl in the middle of the crease towards the stumps then wide of the stumps, then the next ball, he would come from around the wicket. He's just trying to get the batter's eyes moving around a little bit. And, you know, we probably didn't notice that as much. I think Ashwin does it even more. And we've seen Ashwin do some ridiculous things of running across the the crease and all those sorts of things that he does. Um, And if you compare that to Jadeja or, you know, Shakib Al-Hassan, and very talented bowlers, but they're a little bit more one-dimensional spinners. So, yeah, I think there's that, you know, those are the sorts of ones that I think um, were very, very good. And there's also great stories of captains, of course, Mike Brearley putting the two helmets at uh, cover, uh, which you're not allowed to do anymore, um, to try and suck in um, Alan Lamb against, I'm assuming that was uh, Empery, would it have been? Um, I can't remember who the spinner was. You know, so we've heard stories of um, of things like that before from from captains, um, uh but yeah, I, I, certainly Bishop Beatty was one that was uh, mentioned a lot. I'm trying to think if there's, I mean, Anil Kumble would also um, certainly have to go up there. I think if you're looking at someone like Lance Gibbs, from the stories I've heard, that was probably more about accuracy and, you know, those huge hands. Um, uh, Clara Grimmett's a really interesting one. Uh, weirdly enough, there's more good stuff written about Bill O'Reilly than there is Clary Grimmett. I'm not sure how much of that is just because Bill O'Reilly plays, you know, a couple of years later and then after the war. Um, but Bill O'Reilly was, even though he was known as being very accurate, he was certainly um, seen as being someone who was on top. But it, yeah, it's at a certain point, unless you do have a phenomenal stock delivery, I think almost any spinner has to be able to think through everything that they're doing um, just because that's part of that gig. Renee says, we know batters get bowled around the legs all the time. Uh, then why do we have the rule of pitching outside leg? I'm not sure they get bowled around the legs all the time, do they? It's fairly rare. Why do we have the, the rule about pitching the ball outside leg? Well, originally you needed the ball to pitch on the stumps to get an LBW. We changed that to outside off stump um, because the game was getting a bit boring. If you did um, allow LBWs from around the wicket, I think you would find that almost every bowler in the world would start bowling. Every run-on bowler would start bowling around the wicket. And I think that's why we don't have it, Renee. It would be, it would almost turn it into a version of French cricket. Um, it would be an uglier sport. I think the batting would be more far, far, far more one-dimensional. It doesn't improve the sport in any way. And um, you know, I don't I, I think in general, 
bowling outside leg stump is a defensive option. And I'm not sure why we would want to promote that uh, above offside play, which is more attractive, which brings in more kinds of wickets, which brings in more kinds of shots. Put it this way, if you're pitching the ball a foot and a half outside leg stump every ball, it's going to be very hard for anyone to cover drive you. If you're pitching the ball a foot and a half outside off stump, they can still flick you to leg quite easily. So I think when you put the ball around that anywhere from leg stump to, you know, two yards outside um, off stump, it opens up the game in, in a lot of ways. I don't, I, if you want to know what I'm talking about, allow this in a backyard game um, or anything else um, and watch the most the best way to stop someone scoring um, and also the best way um, uh, to make it so that they can only play a couple of shots. And you'll see very, very quickly why uh, we don't allow it in cricket. Aditya says, given the patchy form of the Indian batters and the absence of punt and the quality of the Australian bowling lineup, do you think Australia have a real chance of clinching the series? And also, do you think Australia should play a second spinner or stick to their strength to play three paces? Uh, I kind of think when you go to Asia, and maybe this is different than when you when an Asian team comes to the West, but I think when you go to Asia, I think you're much better off going with your strength. And I'm basing this really on South Africa, West Indies, and maybe even Australia outside of India in their heyday of, um, you know, if you have a really good second spinner, you know, we saw England with Panasar and Swan. If you have two spinners of that quality, I think that's a fine option. If you have an all-rounder, uh, and Australia do have Cameron Green, so that might change things a little bit. Uh, but I think as a, I think as a rule, team that Australia taking over Todd Murphy, Ash, Ashton Agar, I'm forgetting the other spinner, uh, and Swepson, Mitchell Swepson. Uh, I can't see how Swepson is going to be a good enough bowler to put consistent pressure. Todd Murphy's played a handful of games. I really like him as a bowler, but he's another off spinner, so I'm not sure how he fits in there. Um, Ashton Agar, he'd be, he might be okay, but I can't see again how he's going to um, consist, unless the pitchers are absolutely ragging, um, give them uh, the kind of um, wicket-taking options that they need. So with that in mind, you know, Unless the pitchers are just so focused away from seam bowling and won't help seam bowling at all, which considering that has not been the case in India um, over the last few years, uh, that doesn't mean that they haven't been even better for spinners, but they certainly haven't uh, ruled too many paces out of, of too many test matches. They might do that because it's Australia, of course. Uh, but I would, uh, I, you know, for me, I wouldn't worry too much about that if I was Australia. I'd be looking at my best attack, which they might be thinking is you know, Cameron Green as the third seamer um, and then bringing in probably Swepson or Agar, I would have thought, um, Ian as the second spinner, maybe Agar, you know, batting at, what, number eight, I suppose, um, strengthening their batting a little bit. Not that he's an all-rounder, um, but, you know, he's decent number eight, which, you know, allows you to have Cummins, who probably won't make any run-ins in Asia, but maybe Stark uh, batting behind him um, so you have a bit of firepower. Um, as far as the patchy form of the Indian batters, ah, I think everyone's had patchy form in batting over the last couple of years. I mean, India have been pretty good at home. So I'm not, I wouldn't be, I mean, the punt thing is interesting, of course. Um, but I wouldn't, I, I don't think I was looking at that series going, oh, Australia have more of a chance because of the Indian batters. I think it's still going to be really tough no matter what. Um, I could see Australia winning a test, maybe not two. Um, but yeah, it's um, uh, from, from, from that perspective, maybe that gives Australia some more confidence. I'm not sure that will play out in the game, if we're being honest. 
Christopher says, uh, one of my thoughts on the SA20 is that the crowds have had is very impressive. Yeah, I think it's been okay. And for domestic cricket, and for, and for domestic cricket, the best since when, how big a boost could the comp be to South African cricket? Maybe except the West Indies have felt like a country which the cricket is in the decline the most. See, I don't think cricket's in the decline in South Africa. I think that they don't know how to make money out of cricket in South Africa, which is a really different thing. And a bit like the West Indies. I'm not sure the cricket is massively on the decline in the West Indies either. But again, I don't know. They know how to make money off it. You know, the, the South African TV revenue is not huge. The gate prices are, again, not very big. Um, it, you know, even a tournament like this, they're not going to be able to sell the rights, I would have thought, massively around the world. That They sh- hopefully would get some money out of it. But I, I thought it was good that the crowds were there. I think we have seen at times that that sort of improved crowd numbers. Crowds don't matter <laughs> that much, Christopher. I, I mean, they do. Obviously, it shows if the overall thing is working. Uh, but the big bash is worth more now, um, and I'm pretty sure if you look at some of the early big bash before it was even the BBL, uh, back when it was just the state league, they had some incredible crowds for those g- games as well. And it really is about the ability to play multiple games night after night after night, um, you know, in a way that TV audiences come come to it. I'm not surprised that the early crowds uh, were there. Uh, we saw, you know, sort of similar thing with the hundred. Uh, so there's good signs. I can't see how this league is ever going to make enough money for South African cricket to change the future of South African cricket. And if that's the case, it might help um, shore up some problems that they have, with, with especially with their finances. They they lost, what was it, um, $17 million when India you know, had to cancel a couple of games a couple of years ago, um, or last year or whenever it was. Um, that's a lot of money for a cricket board like them. They, their biggest one of their biggest problems is they don't even it's not that i don't think anyone's expecting this well there are some people expecting it to be a huge league but it can't i don't think it can be a huge league because of the tv audience available to it unless somehow it breaks internationally and i don't see that happening but you know it, it's got a better chance than a lot of other t20 tournaments do um but yeah i don't see it making enough money so that it changes the future of south african cricket what it may do though is as you said, I wouldn't say that cricket was on the decline in South Africa. I would say that cricket South Africa was on the decline. It may stop that. Um, there's plenty of talent in South African cricket. <laughs> I've, I've got a piece coming out next week, and you look at some of these players. Like, is it? Um, I want to say Jonathan Bird is one of them. There's so many young guys coming through uh, with batting and bowling. We just like, how good is this guy going to be? Um, you know, I don't think that cricket is on the decline, but cr- cricket South Africa. I've been an absolute mess for a long, long time now. Um, and I think COVID probably, COVID and the, the racial here has probably exposed them in a way that um, they're going to have to change everything. And this is part of that plan. It's not even the first time they've tried this, of course, but still. James said, Adam Zampa's man camp attempt against non-striker Tom Rogers in the BBL was ruled not out as Zampa had passed the expected release point before breaking the wicket. However, on reading Law 38.3, I'm not sure that that's actually required because Rogers uh, was well out of his ground at the expected release port, which the law says makes him liable to be run out, and it does not clearly state when said liability ends, nor does it clearly restrict uh, what the bowler can do in affecting this kind of run out. For what it's worth, Abhishek Mukherjee shares my interpretation uh, that the MCC Twitter account does not. Yeah, I just can't be bothered getting involved with every single man cab one. I, I did. Um, I think I was watching that game live actually when that happened. 
and saw the highlights uh, again. I think the law could be slightly clearer, and I think there's a better way of writing uh, the law. I would have thought once the ball, once if the bowler is delivering the ball and it's gone, you know, past their um, their shoulder, past their head, however you want to look at that, you shouldn't be able to uh, run someone out with a man cap. That's a little bit more indoor cricket style. If anyone's ever played indoor cricket, but I didn't. I if they'd given that out, I I'm a little bit with Abhishek. I I'm not sure that I had a huge uh, problem with it either. Either way, it's just good that they're happening more and more often. Um, you know the way that cricket should be. Um, and before someone in the comments says we shouldn't say the word mancat, I haven't done the video on this, but I'm going to do the big video eventually. The reason I say it, and I know it's his family that don't like it, but his family believe it's a negative thing and it's not a negative thing he was an incredibly smart cricketer a brilliant player and he will not be remembered if this word is not associated with him and he should be remembered because bill brown was cheating and bill brown admitted to cheating and video mad can't run him out and uh so that's why i'm going to continue to use the word I, I mean if it falls out of cricket parlance and gets replaced by something else i'm more than happy to use that but i think it's a beautiful term and also better than the op option of naming it after Bill Brown because then it would be browned. I don't think that works in cricket. M says, how similar do you think test careers of Johnny Bairstow and Alex Stewart will end up looking? Well, that's going to – I'm going to be thinking about that question for a long time. But it's really good batters whose keeping got better and better, both a bit more attacking naturally than most of their England contemporaries, and both will end up probably averaging slightly less than their ability. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Well, one thing I would say is that Bairstow probably comes into the game when batting is really easy. Smashes runs everywhere, gets found out, disappears, come back, disappears, come back. And, you know, what are we up to? Model three, model four of Besto? I'm not sure there was ever anything wrong with Stewart. It was a tough era to bat in. And I think I'm right in saying that he's got a huge differential between what he averaged when he was keeping and what he was averaging when he wasn't keeping. So much so that it's ridiculous they were trying to make him into a keeper for so long. I actually... In interestingly enough, I started a feature on Alex Stewart, you know, a big video feature on him, and it probably just got lost in the many ideas. But I think he's a really, really fascinating player. And I wonder if, you know, there is worth looking. But I do think Besto's a little bit different. I don't think Besto's as good as Stewart technically. Um, and so teams have been able to work him out a little bit. But although, you know, to be fair, Stewart played before, you know, there was a million video replays, so who knows? Um, and I also don't think the gloves affected Bairstow as much as they did Stewart. I would have thought that Bairstow would have had a higher average when wicket-keeping, and Stewart would have a way higher average when not wicket-keeping. But I think that if you watch Stewart and you looked at his record, there always felt like there was a disconnect there. And I think, I wonder if I feel the same about Bairstow. I think I don't feel the same about Bairstow just because his problems were more technical. Um, at times but also I, I think if other people looked at Besto in that way I, I could understand why uh, they would come to that uh, that thinking so Deep says uh, why do you think the Aussie batting lineup with their left hand is how, how do you think sorry try and read uh, how do you think the Aussie batting lineup with their left hand is Warner, Kawaja, Head and Kerry will fare in India against Ashwin and Co don't think Head will play because of that <laughs> I think George Bailey's already said the same he's in the squad and I definitely think he should go out there because I think he should spend you know however long it is five weeks training and facing guys in the nets and you know working on, on all those sorts of things um 
you know, going out after the end of the test match and getting good bowls to bowl to him on the center wicket, whatever he can do. I have to have a look at Kawaja's record. Carey's going to sweep. My memory is that Warner will struggle. Um, but again, I can't remember the numbers off the top of my head. But what is I think I tweeted it recently. Does Ashwin average 14 against left-handers in India over the last three or five years or something? I put a tweet out about Travis Head and and um and Ashwin uh, when I think when Bailey said his comments. So from that perspective, 100 <laughs> percent you know, it's gonna be a problem. There's a whole chapter in Ben Jones and Nathan Lehman's book um about Australians turning up in India with lots of left-handers. It's a weird quirk of Australian cricket uh, that plays out uh, perfectly for um, uh, for Indian off-spinners. Uh, Renee says, we know there are some shocking revelations that come out about Prince Vishaw. I'm sorry, I completely missed those. Oh, I have to look those up. But at what point does his talent performance outweigh his negatives as a person? Or will he be too much of a distraction for his team environment uh, that he's not worth it? It's probably the Alex Hales... Um, law right um which is well, how good are you that it doesn't matter so a really good player a really interesting player actually um is uh dean jones dean jones really alienated a lot of people a lot of lot of, lot didn't like him um you know he he bothered people at certain times and eventually you know he sort of gets moved on from the australian team when Realistically, his record suggests that he should have stayed there. If Dean Jones had continued to make runs in the way that he did in the 80s, late 80s, when he was the best one-day player in the world, by probably by distance, you know, as Viv Richards was easing off, they probably don't get rid of him. So can Prithvi Shaw um, be that good? I mean, at the moment, you'd have to say that is not particularly the case. Uh, if they keep losing World Cups, especially T20 World Cups, he's um, for me he would be an automatic selection on talent. I'm not going to go into what he's like off the field. I'm not going to go into the politics and all those sorts of situations. Some of it, I, I'm not even sure of all the things that you, you, you're talking about there. I don't know how much of it is rumor and how much of it is true and all those sorts of things. Um, uh, but on a very basic level, there's clearly reasons why they haven't picked him. Some of them are fitness, some of them are attitude um, and probably other, uh, other reasons as well. He has to, if that is all true, then he has to be almost undroppable, probably, to have a good career. Otherwise, the teams will always look for a chance for him to go. And I would say in Indian cricket, there's always another Indian t batting talent around the corner with a batting average of 55 or 60 or 70 or whatever, uh, whatever some of those guys have been averaging recently, which makes it really, really hard um, to stand out from the crowd, right? You need to be, you almost need to hit international cricket straight away, make 100 in every format um, and go. Otherwise, they can do that. Obviously, famously, the All Blacks had the, is it no dickhead rule or the no arsehole rule, whatever they call it in the All Blacks. And I know so many sporting teams that have tried to copy that. And I've always said the same thing when they bring it up to me. And I was like, well, when you have as much talent as the All Blacks, you can probably afford for, you know, let's say three of your top 10 players not to play if your your best players from 10 to 20 are still um, in the top, you know, 30 or 40 best players in the world. Uh, if you don't have that, then you have to pick the most talented players and work out how to do it. And, and the other thing I would say, obviously, Cricket's really weird because it's an individual team sport, uh, but it is a team sport. I would say if you go back and look at the Kevin Peterson one, I suppose that's one of the most famous um, situations over the last few years, that 
if you really want to pick the most talented players, it's actually up to you as a cricket culture, as a cricket team, as cricket leaders to work out how to best integrate different people into your settings. And I think Kim Peterson's a fairly good example of how not to do it. Uh, James says, do you know if Rubalinda is a topic of discussion among cricket administrators? Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know if he's, uh, and I don't want to, I don't want to out him. Um, he, I think he's certainly talked to cricket administrators. I think there are certainly cricket boards and cricket bodies who are interested in what he does. I don't know if he's actually ever taken a job, but I know that I've been asked about him. So I'm assuming that someone wanted him before that they all know about him. We had the case with, um, Oh God, I forgot his name. Um, Eddie, uh, the former Australian cricket chairman, uh, who uh, found out that Roe Belinda's channel was in trouble um, and, uh, you know, came out with a public statement, you know, sort of backing him before. It's a really tricky one because cricket boards are still desperate for this YouTube advertising money, which as someone who gets hits on YouTube, <laughs> I don't get it. I think it would not be much better to spread the game um, than doing what they're doing, but they are very, very obsessed with that. Um, and there are ways around it and everything else. I would have thought that, yeah, uh, Roe Belinda should, Board should be reaching out and saying, use as much of our footage as you want, or come and do this, some of your stuff with us. They would have, you know, Cricket Australia or, I don't know, uh, the ECB. They would have incredible archives. He's brilliant at getting the best cricket out of those archives, and he understands what fans want to see. Um, I know he doesn't want to do it full-time, which might be the reason he's done that, but, you know, there are other guys out there as well, you know. So, you know, that kind of arc archival role um he's perfect for it but if it doesn't want to be him it should be someone else but he as someone who's worked in cricket for a long time the sort of skills that he have he has are not particularly that common to other people you need to have the archiving skills you need to have the memory you need to have the meta tagging skills and then the ability to work out what people want to see he's really incredibly rare um and you know if i ran cricket he you know be allowed to do whatever he wanted emron says in a short in a short white ball tournament, like the World Cup or Champions Trophy, is it better to have a flexible bowling lineup or a specialised one? Does it change if you are comparing 50 overs to 20 overs? A flexible bowling lineup or a specialised bowling lineup? Um, if by flexible, do you mean, I mean, it depends on the tournament. I think if you're looking at a tournament in India or Sri Lanka or South Africa, you probably know roughly what your bowlers are going to be everywhere and you might want all the specialists that you need to be able to complete that job for you if you have a, a tournament perhaps in australia uh, like we saw last time and that was even more rare than normal west indies could be another one though especially with the usa um i think you probably want something a little bit more flexible so it might depend on the country and the time of year and also the particular grounds you know if you you're going to a world cup in australia you know 20 2015, uh, you know, uh, when we went to the, uh, when there was the World Cup in Australia in 2015, if you are um, knowing that you're going to have to play games in New Zealand and at the Wacker, they were still playing at the Wacker then. Yeah, they were playing at the Wacker then. You, you then need to know that you, it's going to be very different, right? You can't be, you can't go in with a similar bowling attack. So you do need that flexibility. Also, I think, you know, you probably, if you have a very fast bowler like Umran Malik or Mark Wood, I wonder if it's always worth having one of them in the squad, not maybe for the main teams because they're a bit more used to high pace, but perhaps maybe when you're playing some of the lower end teams, um, 
you know, to almost give your other bowlers a bit of a rest, but give yourself some net run rate chances if, you know, Mark Wood or Umar Malik takes a bunch of wickets. So again, having that flexibility uh, is probably very important. So I think that's what you mean. Unless you, unless what you're actually asking is, do you want more than five bowlers? Uh, you know, the stats on in T20 on what how the sixth bowler goes and the seventh bowler goes are not particularly flattering. That's because they're not specialists more often than not. So you, you certainly, you know, and, and we, I, I would say that England was probably a team that came in with more flexible bowling options, but they do that because they also know that they're going to score more runs. And what they're trying to do is they're not saying we are picking our best five bowlers. What they are saying is we've got seven options here um, that we have. And we think we're going to make 20 to 25 runs more on average than other teams. And we're just going to mess with the formations of those seven bowlers until we get something right that works in this particular game. And and, ho- and also the other thing I would say for them is they're looking for wickets. The other thing that made the final, of course, was Pakistan, who I don't think used their part-timers that much. Is that, am, I, am I remembering that right? I think I think I am. And they went, you know, literally with their with their specialists more often than not. Those are the two best teams in the last two tournaments, really, not just the last tournament. Um, very different ways of looking at it. I, so I don't think there's an ideal one. Uh, Will says, do you think we'll ever see a top-level batter similar to, to some baseball hitters that can bat with either hand and use whatever is the most advantage against the current bowler? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Sonal Gavaska did it once in, what, the 70s, I want to say? Obviously, we're seeing KP and David Warner try it, Maxwell. I know theirs is slightly different. What you're saying is actually set up more like a baseballer. But yes. I don't think we'll see it all the time, but I do think that would make sense uh, for certain players. I don't know if you would need to be ambidextrous. I don't even think you need to be ambidextrous for that. Um, But yes, I I can see it. I wonder how, I I think that the more popular one is going to be the, well, not more popular, but maybe the one that takes off quicker might be the ambidextrous spinners. You can bowl both arm. Um, but maybe I'm wrong, and maybe it is the place that you're talking about. But I certainly think, Will, it's a very good chance of happening in, in pro cricket. And may, uh, I don't know how often it happens in baseball either, so I'm not expecting it to be something that happens that often. Cam says, commentators never or really seem to speak about the wobble ball. Why do you think that is? Because uh, they're not as obsessed with it as me, Cam. It's a really hard ball to... You almost need to talk to a bowler before they bowl or follow them like a hawk. Um, and know that that is what they were doing. I think a lot of ex, a lot of ex cricketers. It's really weird. I've talked to now maybe two hundred people in professional cricket about the wobble ball, and I would still say that especially ex cricketers are really really skeptical. I, I talked to a really smart person in cricket. He was a bowler and a bowling coach, and he was just like Jared. It's just not that big a deal. And I was like, What are you talking about? We've literally got bowlers saying identifying as wobble ball bowlers now. Um, we've got bowlers who are saying, you know, why are you good now and you weren't good last year? Well, now I've got a wobble ball. We've got bowlers saying, I don't bowl out swing anymore. I don't bowl in swing anymore. I bowl wobble ball. Um, but there are still a lot of former players who don't think that way. They are the people who tend to commentate. But th- I think the biggest trick is that if you were to ask CrickViz who which bowler bowls the wobble ball the most, they can't tell you. We don't have a way of doing it. And even if we had something like Rapsido, um, you know, tracking the revolutions of a ball, I, I think if we had a really advanced algorithm, I think we could tell what it is because, you know, that sort of seam, that is the case. I also, the, the, the third thing I would add, and this is definitely true, uh, I talked to someone recently who told me that Graham Onion had a accidental wobble ball. And if you remember, I think Kate Cross talked about it 
on the podcast, or maybe I just asked about her about it off air um, when I did the podcast with her. She had an accidental wobble ball as well. So there are bowlers with that, and that goes all the way through. You know, you, you start to talk to bowls from the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and like, yeah, this guy had that. You know, I think Tim Murta might have told me his was accidental as well. So it does make it a slightly trickier ball to do. But yes, I think so. I commentate a lot for talks for it. And I call the wobble balls and I get a look from Neil Manthorpe all the time of, and Neil Manthorpe's always like, are you sure? And he's also thinking, does Jared know something I don't? But it's just to the point where I know the bowlers well enough who are regularly trying to bowl them. And you could see, the the, the easiest thing to see is how often do they bowl with a straight seam? And if you've watched Tim Southey bowl, it's really, really rare he bowls with a straight seam. And when he wants to bowl with a straight seam, he bowls with it. And when he wants to bowl a wobble ball, he doesn't. It should be fairly obvious when he's bowling one of them. Um, it, but yes, it's not an easy thing. Uh, that is fair. Josh says some domestic T20 comps do women's and men's double headers uh, to get uh, to help get fans interested in the women's game. What if the men's and women's national teams did simultaneous tours? Uh, if one of your country's teams is failing, hopefully the other one is doing all right. So double headers is a controversial thing within women's cricket. It means that their game is a warm up. It means that people are not specifically coming to see them play. It also means that things have to be rushed. I remember the – I was at a big bash game. It was Melbourne Stars. Maybe it was Stars Renegades. And it was a super over game in the women's um, thing. And th- so they were finishing the game, and they only had a certain amount of time to play the super over, which meant whoever was batting first in the super over, the whole t- women's team had to run around – well, not the whole – but the batters. So it would have been three batters on each side, wouldn't it? Had to run around the MCG at top speed to go get their equipment and and pad up again um, and then rush back out. They were exhausted, some of them, when they got out on. Actually, it would have only been one side. The other side would have been batting, wouldn't it? But it was, certainly there was a rush on. Um, and they were doing that because they had to rush to get the game finished by a certain time so the other team uh, could prepare. There are other problems as well when it comes to marketing and advertising that cause problems. I believe the 100 was accidental because of the bubble or because of COVID. Am I remembering that right? I think that's right. I don't think it was supposed to be. It ended up working pretty well, although they had some really good standalone games. I I would say we would go further away from this um, and that women's cricket would prefer not to be involved with this. But I can also see at times when it would work. um, But they're such... I don't think we'll ever see it, I suppose, is the best way of saying it. I'm not saying it's terrible from a cricket fan's perspective. I see what you're saying. Um, but I don't think it's where women's cricket is heading. James says, how does the IPL justify excluding Pakistani players? Well, they don't justify it. That's the easiest way. Um, uh, and do you see any future where some kind of boycott forces and open up? I don't think a boycott. I think that there are times in history when the India-Pakistan relationship is different and... Uh, we probably saw that maybe at the start of the IPL before the Mumbai attacks. I'm trying to think of, you know, there was quite a bit of Pakistan, India cricket at times. Uh, we've seen other times when they have to play in Canada. So, you know, from that perspective, I don't see that changing. The original justification, which I think was Modi's, <laughs> was um, that there weren't any Pakistani players good enough, which is hilarious, of course, because Shahid Afridi was still playing at that stage. And, Maybe late career Abdul Razak would have been quite handy as well. Um, Sohail Tamvia was pretty good in the first tournament. It's even more laughable now with, I mean, I could name bunches of players, but let's just be honest, Shaheen Afridi 
what oh, it's a, it's a really interesting th- thought experiment to wonder how much he would actually go for. Like, is he worth more than Joffre Archer because he he's more of a uh, you know a, a power play wicket taker, or is he worth slightly less because he's not good at the power play? But oh, sorry, at the at the death. But yeah, it's you know it is a bit ridiculous um, the situation. I don't think it's it's one of the things that it'd be really interesting going forward if the IPL is so big that it's almost doesn't matter if they allow Pakistani players in. And and also the ridiculous nature, of course, of this is if you are a Pakistani born and bred player, but you happen to have qualified for another country, you can play because you're not representing Pakistan. But equally, then well, Pakistani players could retire. And, but they still wouldn't probably be allowed into the IPL team, into an IPL team. So, you know, I suppose if you, let's say you were Shaheen Afridi and you looked at how much money you can make in Pakistan and an IPL franchise says, if you retire from Pakistan um, completely, uh, we could pay you this much money. Maybe we'll see some players come along, um, but I doubt it. It just doesn't seem like it's, uh, you know, the, with the politics as it is in India at the moment, I can't see that changing. Um, and, and I think it's a shame because it's such a good league. It's such a good league. And I think the two things, the two main things for me is that eventually I think Indian cricket will be so strong you won't need a local player contingent. But maybe that's a long way away. Um, but I think that would make it better. Um, and then the other, th- you know, you might have one team with eight or nine Indian players who are just really good anyway. And then and then separately, uh, separate to that, um, I think uh, what uh, is hopefully, you know, the Pakistani players coming in. But I don't think either of those are imminent, if we're being honest, James. Uh, Renee says, are you wary of bowlers who start nailing the Yorkers at the death? How sustainable is it for such types of bowlers to succeed? We know batters, uh, bowlers like Bumrah, Malinga, Morris often miss their Yorkers and were still unhittable, while bowlers like Boovy, Karen, Jordan have to be the absolute best. Yeah, I don't think I watch a bowler who's, bat- who's nailing Yorkers and I think that's it's a problem because that's still a skill to have. I think what I would worry about is that if that is your only main skill and i think chris jordan's a really good example you put him in there of someone who really didn't have i don't think has a world-class slow ball his slow ball's fine but i don't think it's anywhere near as good as his yorker and i do think and despite the fact that he can bowl with some heat and he's quite clever uh, with his plans within that i do think that that is probably the reason why chris jordan is not as consistent as some of the other bowlers um, have been and then also the other thing is if you are regularly hitting your Yorker and you're being really successful with it, chances are you're probably not hitting the Yorker as much as it looks like you are. And there's maybe another reason you're doing it. I would say with Bumrah, partly to do with that sort of jolty action and releasing the ball in front of his body. With Malinga, it was releasing it on the side and the underspin, which made it spin under. You know, Chris Morris, I don't know, maybe uh, he, he might just have been more accurate with it. He seemed to have fairly solid plans with his. But I do think a lot of the bowlers who have the better Yorkers have something else that goes, that makes it even more special. So if you were to tell me that some guy comes out of nowhere and bowls 70% Yorkers and is really successful, I'm not sure I'd be massively shocked at that, but I would think that there would be another reason why players can't mess with his line and it's not his line his length by moving forward and back in the crease and being able to scoop one thing i would say is i would say over the last couple of years that uh slower balls are, are so common now that players don't scoop as much which means that maybe we're going to have another surge in yorkers which of course will lead to more people i'm um, scooping again maybe um but i do think that is something that might happen 
Anyway, that's everything for the Patreon. Uh, I will play a couple of ads, and while I play those ads, I will go through your comments, um, see if there's any super chats or anything else, um, and uh, we'll finish up the podcast. Uh, yeah, with it with a I don't want to say a lightning round. That's unfair, isn't it? But you know, a, uh, by just going through uh, what's in the room today and what people are thinking. All right, but first, some ads. Kyle says, a trend I've noticed is that test lineups, spinners either seem to always be sevens or eights, pseudo-rounders or nailed on as number 11s. Am I imagining this or are there reasons you could think of? I think there's certainly a... You don't need to be a great athlete to be a spinner. And chances are, as someone asked earlier, Kyle, that you might have some... um, You might have, you know, you might be quite a thinking cricketer, which means your batting might be slightly better. A lot of it is that, especially in the West, I think this is less the case in Asia, but certainly in the West, there is probably more chance that you will get a spinning job if you also have some batting because, you know, spinning isn't seen as important. But the other thing I would say is that you're probably, if you're a fast bowler, you're probably a great athlete. That athletic skills that you have as a great fast bowler shouldn't translate as well to you being able to hit someone bowling at 90 miles an hour. Whereas I think with spinners, and this isn't the case with all spinners, but I think as a generalization, spinners should be a slightly better, um, well, at the at the least have the ability to be slightly better because their skills is probably not raw athleticism. We have had some incredibly, you know, freakish athletic um, spinners. Um, you know, Jadeja is probably one. Warren is probably another one. I suppose Murali in his own way uh, as well. But the vast majority are not like that. And so if you think about the skills that you need to be able to play, uh, to be able to be a spin bowler, maybe they are slightly more uh, linked towards still being able to bat a little bit. Then you have maybe the other end of that where you have that sort of, I was going to say Chandra Saker, but that's probably unfair on him. But, uh, you know, Phil Tufnell, Stuart McGill, where they're almost like a single use. They're not, this is really unfair because they are athletes, but they're not athletic in any way. And they don't even have the ability to line up a bowler coming down to them, especially, you know, um, at any sort of pace. Um, But yes, I'm not sure there's as much of a pattern there as you think there is, but I think there is a pattern. And, And I think part of the reason the seven and eight thing is is certainly that and then you do see i think some of the worst fielders we've ever seen in cricket have been spinners um and that is because they are not athletic um and you know again go back to toughen <laughs> sorry toughest uh will says are there any bowlers who have vastly varying records against batters who are taller or shorter it's obviously a more gradual change than right left-handers but moving from stock length could um impact them are there any bowlers batters I don't know about that. Uh, what I would say is, and this is not talked about enough, the reason that the West Indies bowlers bowled back of a length, it was not to intimidate. It's because they had so many bowlers who were tall, and tall bowlers, when they when they pitch the ball up, tend to be really, really floaty. And so, you, see, you know, Kyle Jamieson's such a massive outlier in that he's a tall bowler who can pitch up without the ball floating. But you talk to any tall bowler, I mean, Liam Plunkett, I don't know if that podcast is up yet. I think it's up. He talks about it. You know, you bowl up and you become floaty. You hit the back of a length and then suddenly it's a completely different game for the batters. If you think about that, that would mean that tall bowlers are bowling probably back of a length against short batters consistently and don't have the ability to pitch up um, specifically against them. 
Um, and short batters are traditionally, anyway, better against the short ball because they have to face it from a young age. Um, you know, if you've got any friends who are good batters when they're, you know, 12 or 13 and they're, you know, four foot five, they're getting bounces from a really early age. Whereas I was almost six foot tall when I was 11 or 12. And so when, you know, I got, you know, I, I never got many short balls until I got into senior cricket and had to learn them at that level. Whereas my friends who were, you know, far shorter where, you know, I had one mate who was just a brilliant player of the hook shot and the cut shot um, because he was tiny. <laughs> and that's the only shot he ever played. So I would think that there would be matchups there, even if you think about types of bowlers that would, would go that way. But I also think that there would be other bowlers who would um, find that. And I'm trying to think of someone else. So if you think of those sort of maybe a Dale Steyn type bowler, a skiddier type bowler, would he have trouble against perhaps not Zach Crawley specifically, but a Zach Crawley or a Matt Hayden type player who's taller and ha- uh, Kevin Peterson, you know, has bigger strides. And I'm not saying that Dale Steyn had problems with it, would have problems with any of those players, but I'm talking about that kind of bowler who skids it through. If, if you're six foot four, six foot five, and you've got the big front step and you can drive everything on the up, suddenly every ball that a skiddy bowler bowls to you um, should just come in. So yes, I would think that is the case. I don't think we're at the point at the moment where we have that kind of record because I, I would guess, Will, that we don't have measurements for batters. So you're probably right, but we, I, I would I guess the CrickViz uh, don't have uh, measurements for batters and I don't think anyone else does. And it's hard enough getting the proper measurements on bowlers. In fact, I've kind of given up on the height of bowlers and I just go with CrickViz's um, release point because it's kind of more important anyway. Um, and batters would also lie. <laughs> Uh, success value says you and Barrett talked about journalists recently. What is your opinion about guys like John's, uh, Mufa Farid Khan constantly tweet anything and everything about cricket, which I feel is overdoing stuff. I think they just found a niche. I, you know, they're very rarely adding their personal opinions. Um, which if you are news organizations is probably a better way of doing it. If you're not going to be, you know, analytics or editorial based, um, it would be different if everything was, and, 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 and I'm not sure. I think I face Fareed Khan. I, I follow Fareed. No, I follow all three of them. I don't have like strong opinions on any of them. You know, John's, I think I've had maybe the most to do out of those three. Actually, I'll probably, well, I certainly talked to more for as well. Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm trying to remember my relationships in real time here. It's not that much different to what probably what I did with Cricket with Balls, except it was on a blog. And I obviously did add analysis and editorial and swearing and every other bit of nonsensical non you know rubbish that went on on that on that blog it's an aggregator model it makes them uh you know gives them uh, uh, i don't know what would you call it um i don't know how they do it because it must be so time consuming uh <laughs> like a 24-hour clock they probably you know you need to hire people to to help you with it um i'm not sure how much money they're making out of it yet but they probably will but yeah they're not twisting things they're not looking for narratives or anything else and i think that's what me and barat were talking about more specifically if you go back to cricket balls is a very good example but you know the early blogging community there's a lot of that sort of aggregating um side of things we've got a lot of those aggregators now you know is it cricket next cricket addict um all those sorts of things out there um you know when Ab- when people thought abhinav mukund um uh, called virat Kohli racist on my podcast which he didn't it was incredible to me to see how many aggregators there were that just one person wrote that article and suddenly there were 38 of them. I think that sort of aggregation model is certainly, I wouldn't say it's ruined American sports, but 
you know, I've got a lot of friends who do big American podcasts and you hear them say beforehand, this is not for aggregation. This is just a theory I have. Um, and I've been aggregated for things I've said a few times before as well. I worry more about that side of things and this cricket entertainment side of things of, you know, everything seems to be about the beef. You know, who's, are you team Baba? Are you team, you know, uh, Safraz? All this, are you, are you team Rohi? Are you team Kohli? And that's, it's just, all bullshit. Like these guys usually have pretty good relationships anyway. Um, or they're just like normal work colleagues and, you know, and these things happen. I think that's a far more dangerous thing. You know, um, I really noticed it in 2016 when so much of the cricket writing mentioned uh, Virat Kohli's wife, whose name I always forget. I know she's incredibly famous, but I don't know who she is. <laughs> she's Virat Kohli's wife to me. That's how I know her. Um, but that was the first time I... Um, Really realized that it was changing. But even I've seen it in the UK as well. I think there's a couple of titles in some of the England newspapers now that are like cricket. I don't want to say cricket entertainment, but it's like cricket entertainment that they call themselves. And so those people must just be trolling, I don't know, Reddit, Twitter, um, message boards, uh, all sorts of things looking for, you know, it's not even rumors, personal photos of players, all that sort of stuff. In some ways, I suppose it says cricket's getting to a point that's quite good. But I would argue that we just – I remember Andy Bull writing a piece, I can't remember what year it was, but 2012, 2013, saying we're finally maybe seeing the best cricket writing generation. People are, what, are talking about the game a lot more, you know, the quality of writing, the quality of publications. And it seems the minute we got there, <laughs> we flooded that out with um, articles about Virat Kohli's wife and um, uh, yeah, how Baba Azam is, you know, uh, or, you know, it's the stuff that goes on with Shlunkin players' wives, all that sort of stuff. Um, and I think it's a real shame um, because I think there's so many things uncovered from a cricket perspective. I mean, have a look at the comment section on here or on my Twitter any day. You just see people asking me question after question after question. You could literally have a very good career coming into my comment section as a writer and answering the questions that I don't have time to answer. And some writers have done that because I think my work does maybe spur um, conversation a bit more than some others do. Uh, Jugal says, a question about India on 99.94. Coverage is focused on series played by the seniors team. Can we expect more holistic coverage, including things like domestic cricket finances? So whether it's India or anywhere else, we are the, the, the goal of 99.94 is to, do, to cover every professional cricket team. So from that perspective, yes. Um, you know, we would love to have, you know, the PSL, the IPL, the Big Bash, the county teams, the 100 teams, all covered uh, with podcasts. It's just getting the finance in. in Jugal, if you have a you know an uncle with uh, a couple of million dollars to spend, I think we've proved that this, the, our theory worked. People want this sort of content. We haven't even got to the point of pushing it in the way that we want. We haven't even got to the point of distributing the way we want or marketing the way we want. And it's already um, doing a lot of things that, that are fantastic. But you know, we originally, if I, you know, I don't know if I've ever talked about this before, but the original plan was to start with county cricket because we knew there was a fan base there. And what we're not trying to do is get 100,000 listeners on this podcast and 4 million listeners on this podcast. We're really looking at it from a holistic point, as, as you say, and going, well, we get 3,000 listeners on this podcast and 3,000 listeners on all the county podcasts. We can actually get enough money from sponsors um, to be able to turn that into something. From there, you know, the next plan was the IPL. We just never got money in time. And the first time that, you know, uh, we, especially as 99.94 came together with, you know, Vasu, Shankar, um, you know, uh, John and I um, all coming together, that was 
before the World Cup. So at that point, it didn't really make sense to do cover the IPL or counter cricket. It made sense to cover the international teams going into the World Cup because of the financial problems. We haven't been able to look. I've got hosts ready to go. <laughs> We've got one hosting team that has a microphone and, you know, we're not quite ready to, to start them yet. So we certainly have problems uh we, we certainly have problems with with that at the moment. But, yeah, if we get the funding, I would love to do everything. Finances, I don't know. I, I think that perhaps further down the line, it'd be really interesting to have a cricket administration slash business podcast. It's certainly not in my, you know, first 50 podcast ideas, but it's probably something I would listen to. <laughs> and I do think it's going to be more and more interesting. Um, you know, we saw Chaos Rao you know some of his threads and stuff and he might be an ideal host for it in fact but you know there's a couple of other uh, people out there as well they're really interesting um there's a lot of stuff that happens in cricket business and administration you know like ecb will win an award for something they did online and all it just nothing that really gets talked about because there isn't really anyone that covers that kind of beat and the same with politics you know i covered politics quite heavily tim wigmore probably came in on the back and did it quite heavily um you probably got someone like ksr in um in india there aren't that many of us you know gideon would have been before me who've done it but again it's a fascinating you know you know you look at what happens off field in cricket whether in business or politics is really fascinating so I, I mean i would love for that to be the case we have to you know at the moment this is still um you know a bootstraps um, thing we haven't got the investment that we needed we're doing what we can. I'm glad that, you know, you and many other people are liking what we can, but it's an uphill battle that we're still battling. Uh, Prabhat says, why do Aus- why Ospinans often found chucking? The way to spin the ball, this is only going to work if you're on YouTube, but the way that you spin a ball with Ospin means there is a sort of a, you can almost see me doing it there. So if I bowl leg spin, there's actually no sort of straightening of the arm and, and the same with seam bowling. In fact, there are bowlers who, have told me that it actually hurts them when they chuck, uh, especially fast bowlers, because your action kind of falls down a bit. That's not the case for everyone, of course. Some people have like a bit more of a natural flex and different kinds uh, of things. Whereas when off spin, if, if you stand in a crease with a cricket ball and throw down an off spinner, you'll be able to get that ball to the other end and get it to do something. Try and do the exact same thing with leg spin and it just sort of dribbles out of your hand. So there's almost a, a natural throwing action in there and we've always known that sunny ramadan bowled in long sleeves uh lock and laker you know tony lock uh, was another one whose whose action fell apart it's weird that we didn't talk about it really that much until murally got good maybe because his action is i mean his action is so inverted from everyone else i would say that there are other off spinners at the same time as murally who had more illegal actions than he did but his action was so inverted and so in your face you you know it was probably, even if he did, wasn't straightening it, it's probably the most bent arm that we'd ever seen. That me- then meant that we looked at it differently. And then on top of that, the Dusra is a very hard delivery to bowl uh, with the straight arm. I'd say basically impossible. Um, I'd say it's hard. It would be, you'd be more, more likely to see a bowler be able to bowl a flipper than be a, a, we, we'd be more likely to see 10 bowlers who could bowl a flipper at test match quality than we'd be able to see one bowler um bowl i do throw with a straight arm and it's almost impossible to bowl a flipper anyway Andy says why are so many south african players retiring so early and preferring to play in leagues even new zealand are cancelling their central contracts why only players from these countries well it's not just players from those countries of course we had the west indies before that um you know we not that long ago we had a bunch of zimbabweans playing county cricket 
and if they'd been franchise players, they would have played as well. Um, who else have we got? Um, I'd say that's the main ones. The top of my head, I'm probably missing someone else. It's because their crew boards don't have any money and they don't get paid very much. And their domestic cricket, you know, I mean, was it 2003 or 2004 that players got paid to play domestic cricket at all in New Zealand? Before that, it was an amateur um, competition. So if you're a professional player playing domestic cricket in New Zealand, you're not making any money. And it's really, it really is, unless you're in the top eight players in New Zealand or South Africa, um, and even if you're in the top eight players in the West Indies, you're just not going to make any money. And the money is elsewhere. And the entire history of cricket says that people will leave. Um, if you really want to go back to South Africa, we've been seeing it since Aubrey Faulkner. Aubrey Faulkner was their first truly great player. Um, and he left to play club cricket not even club cricket he left to play in someone's backyard in england which really tells you um that this is not a, a new problem in fact if you go back to the history of south african cricket you'll find that the years that they played test cricket they didn't have a first class competition because they couldn't afford both they've never been able to make money out of their cricket you certainly make the same argument out of the west indies you certainly make the same argument out of new zealand which makes those particular nations a little bit more uh fraught uh when it comes to you know being actually having to pay for a living you go back to new zealand you've got oh wow i mean there's a lot of them uh but stewie dempster um again played uh f- for this same old fella that um aubrey faulkner played for which i've done an episode on double century about if you want to go in uh, and, and have a look there um on, on julian khan uh, who bought cri- the best cricketers from around the world this is in the 1920s and 30s even before that i think he just went around buying the best cricketers in the world um because he could and it meant that the international teams were far weaker so stewie dempster could have been a great player for new zealand barely played for them glenn turner essentially quit New Zealand in his prime. You know, uh, Richard Hadley certainly made a lot more money playing county cricket than he did uh, playing internationally. Um, Garfield Sobers once said he would not play in the West Indies for a test match because he was going to play club cricket in England. Leary Constantine uh, decided to play. um, uh, He played for the West Indies to get a club contract with England. Uh, None of this is new. This has been going on for a very long time, not to mention, you know, many uh, uh, South African players, even under the Colpac situation, who came over. Um, There's not money to play cricket in those markets, so uh, they go where the money is because they only have a 10 or 15-year career and chances are a lot of them are not going to be, um, you know, real estate moguls. Abraham says, we often have... We have often seen teams go for matchups as a tactic. Which format is the one which matchups have a big effect? Test T20 or ODI? Uh, probably T20 because if you're bad against a particular kind of bowling, it's going to be exploited a lot more when you are trying to score quickly against it. Test matches, perhaps you can get away with it. Also, we never talk about this. It's one of the it's one of the big myths of test match cricket, which is, oh, this captain, he made this bowling change and straight away he got the wicket. It's like, yeah, because the other bowler was tired. <laughs> so he had to bring someone on. That's how most test um, things go. So it's actually harder to do matchups because when you do matchups in test, test matches, quite often it means that you're probably churning through someone's overs um, because they're coming back in out of, out of schedule. So uh, T20 probably makes the most sense, but one-day cricket as well. But again, you can probably turn the strike over in one-day cricket where it doesn't affect the overall team as much. Where in T20 cricket, it, you look at someone like Darren Sammy who had a strike rate of like 85 against spin bowling for like big periods of his career. Even just staying in against the spinners was a problem for him. He doesn't have the 
ability to strike, uh, to, 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 to rotate the strike and get off strike. Um, so the mat- if you get a good matchup against Aaron Sammy, you might get an over of, of one or two runs. If that is the 14th or 15th over of the game, when at that stage you're ex- the expected runs are what, eight and a half, nine runs and over, that's a huge, huge advantage. Um, so I would probably think it's that one. Uh, Oren says, best books on periods of cricket, teams in cricket, or just the history of the game in general. Do you know one of the best books that doesn't get talked about enough is the book on fire in Babylon, which is so much better than the movie. And I think because by that stage, the hype of the movie had disappeared a little bit. Um, but if you really want to get a good idea for West Indian cricket of that period, and it's an absolutely great period, it's certainly worth having a look at that. Uh, Bodyline Autopsy, if you want that sort of 19, I suppose, is it all the 1930s? I suppose it is. There's a couple of books. John Major, the former England Prime Minister, wrote a very good, a, a decent book about the early part of cricket, which probably, I can't remember what period he stops. Maybe it's World War I, um, or maybe it's World War II, I can't remember. Um, H.S. Eltham also uh, does that. There is, and I'm going to forget the name of it, but the first cricket book ever written, you can sometimes find cheap online versions of it, or you can find like a, a tattered old version and I've now forgotten the name of it, but it talks about the Hambledon era, uh, which is really, really interesting because that's essentially the cradle of cricket. That's where the, the laws were written down. That's when the fences were put up. That's when we have our first overarm delivery. It's when that guy turns up with a bat too wide. It's it's not a very long book. There's not that many words in it or anything like that, but but it's certainly very good. I'm forgetting all the names, but you know, you then have uh, you have a really good book on uh, um, uh, Dan Bredig's Whitewash to Whitewash is really good for that period of Australian cricket. If you want to know about 80s Australian cricket, Christian Ryan's book Golden Boy is probably ideal. It's a great book written on the um, West Indian Rebel players. Um, sorry, I don't, I can't remember all the names of everything or the authors off the top of my head. David Wodehouse, uh, I think it's David Wodehouse, just released that book on the. England's tour of the West Indies in the 50s, I want to say. Uh, I'm trying to think. Uh, Usman Samedin on Pakistan uh, was incredible. It's a great book recently that this came out about Pakistan women's cricket. So there's a few good ones out there that are certainly worth having a look at if you get the chance. Weirdly enough, if you go through, the, I, I wrote um, Test Cricket, the unauthorized biography. If you go through that, most of the books that are focused on one area, I have kind of talked about because you know, for me, that was a much better book to read. So if I wanted to, you know, the 50s was always a real flat spot for me. And there was a book written about cricket in the 50s. It's not a brilliant book, but it's so good. It, and it's, I think it's very English biased, but it's really, really um, well-researched. And so, you know, each, there are different eras that have those sorts of things um, uh, available. But yeah, I'm not an expert. Abhishek Mukherjee, hit him up on Twitter. If there's a period of of cricket that you're really interested in, Oren, um, uh, hit him up on Twitter. Tell him I said that you had to answer. Uh, he said I said he had to answer. Um, tell him what period you want, and he might be able to come up with a, with a good idea. In fact, everyone should just tweet Abhishek now, just so that he wonders why suddenly uh, his Twitter is lighting up. Uh, last one for today, Ashutosh Pandey says, how to start a career in sports data analytics. Look, if you're talking about cricket, and I can only imagine you are, you really want to start with how you get the information. That's the trickiest thing in cricket. Uh, you know, a crick sheet is obviously a great way of starting. Uh, there are other places out there that have it, but without you need to start there. I would say I would say that the future of sporting analytics is probably people who can code. I think people like me are probably 
useful in other ways, but certainly um, dinosaurs in in certain ways when it comes to analytics. What else do you want to know? I, I, the basic thing I always say is the same thing. What can you tell a team that they don't know? That's all the job is. It really is more of a due diligence job than anything else. And so if you're seeing a team making repeated mistakes, you know, reach out to someone from the team on, on, on LinkedIn or social media or any way that you can with your bit of information. Most of the people I know who have started in, in analytics, I would say half of them have started through companies like, you know, QuickViz and Kadamba and, uh, you know, all the other companies. Um, and the other half have probably just started by just contacting someone and going, why are you doing this? I mean, I, I, it's something that I did occasionally, you know, I tried not to do it too much, but my first job offer was Melbourne Stars. And that came from me writing about Melbourne Stars a lot and them going, why don't we know any of this? You know, that's kind of where these things come from. Uh, anyway, uh, big thanks to everyone who has come in today and ask questions. Check out all the 99.94. Like I said, the more podcasts you listen to, you know, the more listeners we have, the more we can grow that brand and get some other podcasts if that's what you're looking for. Uh, so if you want the most niche cricket podcast ever, chances are I've already got it on my list and we're just uh, looking to do that. Um, what have we got coming up on, on the YouTube site? I'm trying to think. I have something about South African batting. I still have my video about uh, Chris Green. I'm going to say Cameron Green. Oh my God. And I usually call him Chris Lynn, which is worse. And what else have we got coming up? Uh, there's a couple of other things. A really interesting thing I found about the sort of the history of Hawkeye, which is quite interesting. And a little video about the Royal Pindi pitch that has been fined. And now the Pakistani cricket board is um, doing that. So some really interesting ones, but heaps of feature stuff as well. Plus, apparently now I've got to go and finish that Alex Stewart one that I'd... I think I've spent ages on that and now I've completely forgotten it. But thanks to everyone for, uh, for tuning in again. And we'll be back roughly same time next week for another show. Thanks for listening to Wagon Wheel on 99.94. Remember to download our app or just search for 99.94 where you find podcasts or on YouTube. This show has an ad-free version via Patreon which also allows you to ask questions before anyone else and many other extras as well. There is a link in the show notes. And if you want more content, well, I have good news for you because we have a lot of things. You can follow us on YouTube where we make all kind of crazy stuff like the complete history of New Zealand opening batters and how Kagisa Rabada was dismissed from a zombie ball. We do a similar thing on TikTok. I also have an emailer that sends out a couple of columns a week and we run another podcast called Double Century on the History of Cricket. This podcast is hosted by me, Jared Kimber. It is produced by Nick McCorriston. We also have a great support team from 42 with Rati Joshi on socials, Orijoti Senapia producing podcasts, Maida Akam producing some of the shows, and Makunda Banredi as the head of YouTube content. <laughs>